We're going to start out with a very basic definition to give you an idea of what we mean when we're talking about demons in the Bible. Uh, this is courtesy of Wayne Grudem, a theologian who uh, many of you perhaps have heard of. If you haven't, good uh, systematic theology that he has that I've very much borrowed from heavily from this uh, for this course, as well as a guy named Miller Erickson. But Wayne Grudem says this about demons, and I think it's helpful. I couldn't think of a shorter, better way to surmise it. He says, they are evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in the world. So again, they are best understood as evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in the world. So the first part of that definition I think is important. It's, it says that they're evil angels. We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, those evil angels and how evil started. But I think it's important that we first realize that the Bible does not give us an indication that demons are related to human spirits or deceased humans, which some people may at you may come into contact with people that think along those lines. So it's, it's not human spirits. It's not other spirits. First Thessalonians 4.16 uh, is a verse that talks about Jesus' second coming and reminds us that those that are dead are, are dead. They're, they're dead uh, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But that one speaks specifically of when Jesus comes, the dead in Christ will rise first. And so it just has this idea that we're dead until the resurrection. Our bodies are dead after we pass away here, our bodies are dead until Jesus returns. When we die, we go, our spirit goes to be with the Lord. And so it's not as those, um, they're, they're milling about earth. We're going to see in a moment, uh, an example where it might be an exception to that rule. But, uh, you also see a, a verse, let's go to second Samuel 12 verse 23. Second Samuel 12 verse 23 here, David has sinned with Bathsheba, and as a result of his sin, they had a child. That child grew sick very quickly and passed away. And this is what David says in reference to that. He says, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Essentially saying he's, he's dead. Spirits of people that pass don't come back uh, to earth. That's not something that we have, would have biblical evidence for. The one potential exception, depending on how you interpret it, is in 1 Samuel 28. So we're going to read some of 1 Samuel 28. Uh, this is a very, very interesting passage. Saul is the king of Israel. Uh, and Saul, while he maybe started out well, did not continue well in his kingship. And this is recording a specific time in Saul's life when things were definitely, oh, sorry, it's second. No, sorry. First Samuel 28. Yes. Anyways, it's recording a time in Saul's life when things are particularly not going well. God is not responding to him. And so he takes matters into his own hand in terms of how to uh, access the knowledge he needs. So first Samuel 28 Verse four, we'll start at the Philistines, actually verse three. Now Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. That was a good decision. 
that was actually biblically something that Saul should do to get rid of the, midi- the mediums and the necromancers. Mediums being like these people that contact the spiritual world, necromancers, like uh, the idea of contacting the dead. These people were put out of the land and that was a good and right thing. This is giving some context, though, for what's coming up. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shanuim, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was, very, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. So God was silent in Saul's life, uh, because Saul wasn't living for him at that time. God was silent. Samuel was, in some ways, for Saul, like a God's instrument communicating with Saul. And so Samuel being dead just illustrates how distant now Saul is from God. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord didn't answer him. So then verse 7, then Saul said to his servants, he takes matters into his own hand, he says, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. Now, these are the people that he had just (laughs) cast out of the land. And his servant said to him, behold, there is a medium at Endor. So this servant's obviously not a very good servant in one sense, because they're supposed to be gone, but he knows where they are. Uh, There's this medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman, woman by night. And he said, divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Sam- then the woman said, Uh, Sorry, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, to Saul, uh, said why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he, has spoke, he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me, a.k.a. you shall die. <laughs> the Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. And then Saul falls down filled with fear, right? And, and on and on. And we actually hear the next day it comes true. He does die. So this is the only account in scripture that gives any kind of hint that it might even be possible for there to be the spirit of somebody dead coming back. Now, when I look at this passage and read it, 
there's a couple of things that stand out to me. First, obviously, mediums and necromancers are not something God approves of. Their Deuteronomy uh, talks about that being something they were supposed to take out of the land. Saul doing this was a good thing. God doesn't approve of that. God being silent to Saul, to Saul rather, in those three ways, like he he inquired of the Lord and he would not answer him and not even by the Urim or by the prophets. That whole idea of God being silent makes me wonder why God would allow this, certainly an exception to the rule of Samuel's spirit coming back to speak to happen. I don't, I don't understand why that would happen. So my, my tendency would to look at, look at a passage like this and say, it looks more like demonic to me, that it would be a, a demon manifesting himself as Samuel to Saul. But then the message is kind of in line with what Samuel would actually say, right? Like, and so the, the, truth, the truth of the matter is we don't actually know for certain either way. My tendency would be to think that it's not a good thing. It's more demonic, but I can't say that definitively. So as we look at it, if, if it were to be God allowing in this situation, this witch or this medium at Endor to bring up the spirit of Samuel, it would totally be an exception to the rule. Nothing that is uh, commonplace, for example, because even this witch or this medium is surprised, right? When it goes through the passage, she's actually surprised. She's like, whoa. So it would be an exception for her, it seems. Uh, so not something commonplace. And then totally, it's off limits as well, right? It's mediums and necromancers, not, not appropriate for believers. I'm inclined to think that it probably wasn't Samuel, but I don't know. But the whole point of that to say is demons, demons can maybe perhaps manifest themselves as the spirit of somebody that has passed on. They could, they could disguise. They're all about deception, right? They could certainly disguise them, but there's no biblical precedent to say that demons are, in fact, just human spirits that are deceased. Yes? Could that be why they are called familiar spirits? Because they are familiar with certain families, certain people? So where is that found? Sorry, familiar? Familiar? Familial? Yeah, familiar spirits. Where would that terminology come from? Uh, I can't quote the scripture right now. I'd have to find that, but uh, it does talk about familiar spirits. Yeah. Yeah, you'd have to help, help me out by finding that passage. I don't, we'll get into this in the Q&A next week more, but the idea of like similar, if, if demons are fallen angels, the same kind of rules that would apply to angels for the most part would apply to demons in the sense of there's probably not one demon attacking you that's just your demon for life as there would not be an angel like a guardian angel. That being said, uh, could there be, like, our demons personal beings in the same sense as the angels are? It would seem yes, that there is. Uh, it's not like some impersonal force or something like that. So anyways, all I have to say, the best, the best evidence that we have from Scripture is that demons would be these fallen angels. We talked, when we were spoke, speaking about angels, as angels being 
the good angels being unfallen angels and demons would be these fallen angels then. So then we have to ask the question, so uh, where does it all come from? But before we get to that, a couple of just points for us as we're talking about this. Demons are real. Scripture presents demons as real things, not as, uh, as I was going to say, some would present demons as just like, you know, the the system, the government. It's kind of like demonic, not really evil spirits, but just like the system itself is is messed up. That is not the uh, extent. Demons are real. Some want to, to peg them. Even in the Bible, they would talk about them as like myths that we've now, you know, outgrown. We've kind of realized those aren't, that's not really what's going on. We don't believe that. Demons are absolutely a real thing. Uh, and they they are more personal in nature, not just like a big system. So we don't want to give them more attention than they deserve, but there's also the opposite um, opposite of just, well, and along with that, we don't want to fill in gaps with points uh, that we just make up. So we got to be careful to stick with scripture on this. But there's also a danger of ignoring demons. So as you come into tonight, some of you may come from a very demons aren't real background and think to yourself, like, why does this even matter? Well, it matters because they're real, but it also matters because of a verse, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. So we're going to look that up. Just this helpfully uh, help you to think about why it's important. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. Paul is speaking to the church, speaking to them about forgiveness in this sense, uh, in this spot. Uh, basically, somebody had sinned. He'd repented. He'd He's begging them to reaffirm their love for this individual. And then verse 10, he says, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs or his schemes, his plans, right? The idea there is Satan, or, uh, Paul and the Corinthians are not ignorant but if they're not ignorant, it almost it implies that you could be ignorant about what Satan's doing. And you could be potentially outwitted by what Satan is doing. And so God gives us, in Scripture, ample understanding. But the reason we're studying demons is because we don't want the tools that God has given us or the knowledge that God has given us to remain on the shelf. Meanwhile, we're being played, being schooled by the demonic realm. Basically, they're like, they don't, they could know this, but they don't know this, right? And so we're going to use that to our advantage, right? Uh, and so knowledge of truth is a huge thing that God has given us as a, a blessing so that we don't have to be outwitted by Satan. It's interesting that when he talks about being outwitted by Satan, he talks about it in the context of forgiveness. And so just mull on that and think about that. I know, uh, when I've talked to people about Satan or demonic influences, it quite quickly goes to physical things. Uh, you know, did Satan prevent me from getting to work on time so I didn't get that interview? Or did Satan prevent this or that? Uh, but there's also an element where it could be Satan doesn't want you to forgive someone. And so he'll do everything in his, mind, in his power, that, in his limited power, to deceive you, to misrepresent things that you don't forgive. So just think about uh, this 
context. We don't want to be outwitted by Satan, and this is in the context he's talking about forgiveness. So there's a danger of ignoring the demonic realm, and so we don't want to do that. At the same time, there's a danger of giving them more attention than they deserve. Demonic worship uh, is listed in the Bible in several spots. We'll get there, but certainly we can give them way too much attention or way too much credit, and we don't want to do that either. So where did they come from? If you have a Bible, turn to Genesis 1, verse 31. This doesn't tell you where they came from, but it tells you something that's important, which is that at the end of creation, we know for certain, based on scripture, that demons, evil demons, did not exist as evil demons. Because Genesis 1, verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, which would include the angelic realm. And just to make a note on angelic, I got to say angelic and call me out if I say angelic because I keep saying the word wrong and my wife bothers me. So <laughs> anyways, <laughs> angelic, God created the angelic realm, everything that he had made and behold, it was very good, very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So it was very good. Everything was very good. So we know at this state, at the end of creation, everything was very good. So at this point, there is no demonic realm as such. Those individuals exist. Those beings exist, but they have not yet turned. Then you go to Genesis 3, which is a short two chapters later. Genesis 3 verse 1. And it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And you read on and you hear how the serpent, who we understand as the Satan, the accuser, the serpent starts tempting Eve. And so somewhere in between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, something happened. Because this serpent is not good. This is not very good. This is not part of the very good creation. And so we have to go outside of Genesis to get that content, to get that backstory to understand what happened uh, in that space. And so we have partial answers. There's no like explanation that's total and super clear. Uh, we have to understand from what we've been given. So we're going to go to 2 Peter 2 verse 4. For one, 2 Peter 2 verse 4, Jude 6, we'll look at it as well. They're, they're very similar. 2 Peter 2 verse 4 says this, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And then he goes on, if he did not spare the ancient world. But in that verse 4, it tells us that angels sinned. So that's where we learned when we were speaking about angels, that angels have the ability, the, the capability to, to choose. They have the ability to sin. And certainly some angels sinned. And he cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So angels sinned. That likely is best described as happening somewhere between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. Before we move on from this, just a couple of notes. Some would look at this verse and say, he didn't spare the angels, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains. Chains there sounds pretty fastened, pretty unable to get anywhere, uh, chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Some have read that and thought, well, evil angels, demons, sure seem to have a presence in this world. So how are they 
kept in chains and yet still active in this world. We're not, we're not in hell right now. Some of you may feel like it at times, but we're not in hell right now. That's where they said to be. To be. And so how does that work? And so some have actually devised like two classes of angels, the ones that are you know, locked away and the ones that aren't. Probably not a real good way to explain that. And the reason why is because if we look back to verse 2, 2 Peter verse 2, it's talking about, uh, it's talking about evil people. And it says, and many of that, many will follow their sensuality. Uh, and because of the way of truth will be blasphemed. And they're, sorry. I got it. Okay, so false prophets also arose among the people. Sorry, verse two, two, verse one. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon himself swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So, and back and down to verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The idea is, if you read, essentially, I'm not, I'm not uh, finding the right verse, but if you read in the context of 2 Peter 2, it would seem that it's using similar type language for human evil people, speaking about them as being condemned, speaking about them as being, in some sense, judged, but yet they still have some element of free reign or ability to live. And so similarly with the demonic, maybe it's in the Jude passage. We go to Jude 6. I have to get back to the one, but the Jude 6 does similarly say, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Okay, so, and then this one, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So essentially talking about this, this is referring to those angels in that position before Genesis 3, after Genesis 1. Angels, they fell when they sinned. They did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. And the thought is that these angels, while they're condemned to this place, have some measure of freedom to go about oppressing within the limits that God has given them. I'm going to have to find that verse back on the break and get back to you on that. But the idea here is that's, that answers in part, where did this evil angel come from? Now, two passages we're going to talk about that potentially refer to the devil, the Satan or the serpent, we're going to look at briefly now and then we'll look at again a little later. But the, they are Ezekiel 28 verses 13 to 17. And then a verse from Isaiah. So Ezekiel 28 verses 13 
to 17. Again, these are prophets writing Ezekiel and Isaiah, and they're writing about, in this case of Ezekiel, about this, uh, the king of Tyre, I think it is. And in Isaiah, I believe it's about Babylon. They're writing, and there's a near referent, but they talk about someone who sounds a lot like the devil. And so if you've heard before this kind of language, these are the two places people go to to get that. And I think we can use them this way uh, cautiously. So Ezekiel 28 verses uh, 13. Not Ezra. Ezekiel. Okay, so in Ezekiel 28 verse 13, it says this. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Sorry, actually, it's just before it in verse 12. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle. And carved in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Now, here's where it gets to sound like, this, this sounds really like an angel. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. As you read through that, it sounds like the king of Tyre at parts, but it absolutely sounds like an angel, the guardian cherub at other parts. And so this is one of the ones where we go to, to kind of understand as best we can what, kind of happened in that Genesis 1 to Genesis 3, where Satan, they accused the, the devil, the Satan, was proud because of his beauty, corrupted. Uh, he did evil. He sinned. In Isaiah, we're going to see another way that he sinned. But this was perhaps the best, the best recounting of that in between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. So Isaiah 14, verses 12 Isaiah 14, verse 12 says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star. In some, uh, I think it's King James Version, it'll say, O Lucifer, um, which is perhaps okay. It's kind of an interpretation of O day star, but like literally, it's it, more literally, it's O day star, son of the dawn, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. And then it goes on. So in that context, it's referring, yes, to Babylon in one sense, but it's also very clearly looking and sounding like this 
this story of what has happened with Satan. So Satan perhaps being a guardian cherub who was in the presence of God, who then of his own choice sinned against God by aspiring to be great, right? Being full of himself. He's like, I'm pretty beautiful. I'm pretty awesome. I can be above God. And in that, he, and likely at that point, he and a whole ton of angels, a whole ton of angels, how, how many were not certain, rebelled against God and fell. Those angels referred to in Jude 6 and 2 Peter that sinned against God and fell. And so, do you have a question? Okay. God created all the angels. No different, no right or wrong. So where did that, where do you think their personality came from? Where did that proudness come from? Like, Good question. Okay, because that's our discussion question. <laughs> sort of. It's a variation of that. So that's actually, okay, just give it two seconds and then we'll get there, okay? So as you're reading through scripture, you will come across a passage in Revelation 12, verses 7 to 12, that speaks of the fall of Satan from heaven to earth, but that's to be understood as a yet future event, where Michael, the archangel, and Satan duke it out, and their angels duke it out, and Satan is cast out of heaven. In the idea of him being in heaven there, it's probably him being the accuser who comes before God accusing, kind of like he did with Job, where he's you know, out there to test and to try. And in that sense, we can't really get into the whole eschatology discussion. But just when you're reading that passage, that passage, when I first read it, I thought, that sounds a whole lot like what probably happened to the Garden of Eden, right? Satan and his angels rebelling. But it's not, that one's not to be applied to then. Yes. Revelation 12, verses 7 to 12. So um, that's, anyways, it's fascinating. But in the whole context, you'll see that's speaking of this apocalyptic vision that John had for the future. And if you go to John 8, verses 44, this gives us one final piece to that. Genesis 1, 1, or 131 to 3 verse 1 puzzle. So in this passage, Jesus is speaking and he says to the people he's speaking to, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do the father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So we learn a few things about him, right? He's a murderer. But then it says from the beginning. So that should not be understood as from the beginning of creation, but from the beginning time, because all of this happened in a very short period of time, likely a short period of time, between Genesis 131 and 3 verse 1. Essentially, the angels are created. Satan sins. And he appears then, because of other verses we'll see later on, to be the prince of demons, to be the kind of like what Michael would be for the, as an archangel kind of leading the angels that we see in Revelation 12. Satan is for the demons, um, being kind of the, the leader of the charge, right? He being the, the first to rebel and leading others astray. It's kind of the best we can conclude from that. But now you kind of know where those passages are, where people will go to, to support that and where I think we can go to support 
kind of our understanding of Satan in there in the begin, around the beginning. So now we're going to have a little bit of time for a discussion uh, just in a small group of people around you for about five minutes is we need to ask the question, the really important question, where did this all come from? Which is what Nathan was asking. Where did Satan, how, maybe better put, I want you to think with your group how you would explain to somebody the presence of evil in general, but specifically the presence of evil in the garden, like the fact that Satan could sin. The problem of evil, just quickly stated, so if you've never been familiar with this and maybe exposed to this kind of thought, is God is good, God is powerful, and sin exists. And those three things cause a lot of problem for people because sin, evil exists, it's real, it's absolutely real. We believe God is good and we believe God is powerful. So if God is powerful, he's all powerful, he should be able to deal with sin and sin shouldn't exist. That would be our first thought. But then, well, maybe he's not powerful, right? Some would say, well, maybe he's not actually powerful enough to deal with sin. We don't believe that. We believe he's totally powerful enough, right? Then people would say, okay, he's powerful enough, but sin still exists. So maybe he's not good, right? Maybe he's just kind of like, oh, well, I'm, I could totally stop it, but I'm not going to stop it. I'm just going to let sin, sin go on. And, and then we would struggle with the goodness of God, right? But we believe he's absolutely good. He's totally good. And so that's where the problem lies. Either sin and evil does not exist, but we'd all know it exists. God is not good, or, but we know he's good. Or God is not powerful, but we know he's powerful. So how do we reconcile those three? So that's your discussion question. Talk amongst yourself. If you solve this, you can write a book and sell millions. <laughs> so just tipping you off that it might be a little hard. So for five minutes, discuss this, and then we'll share a little bit, and I'll give you some uh, info. But, so couple of, uh, a little bit of feedback. What's your, what's your answer? If, if somebody was to come to you, if I was to come to you today and ask, why is there so much evil in the world? Like, how did it get there? Right? Yeah. We, I hope we've asked that question because it's a good question. How would you respond to somebody that's asking that question? Free will. Free will is an answer. Okay. We have parts that are desperate. Yep, that absolutely answers for some of it. It doesn't answer for how we got the desperately wicked hearts, but it does answer for a ton, like a ton of the wickedness we see because today. Because we're, we're born in sin. Um, when they eat of the fruit in the garden, mm-hmm. that has an effect upon the whole world. Mm-hmm. The whole world became corrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, it, had, it had a change on the whole world. And from that point on, because they were born perfect, but once they sinned, um, we became sin. We are yep. born in, into sin. Yeah, so for us, for us now, it's pretty easy to explain where evil comes, at least one type of evil comes from, right? Where we could say, like, the moral evil of, let's say, murder is, like, we're, we're, we're born we're in sin. We're born in sin. The yeah. further we got away from the garden, the worse the sin became. Yeah, interesting. Okay, Jack. Are angels born in sin? Yeah, angels so angels are not born <laughs> you almost caught me <laughs> yeah so we would say that 
angels had to, it, we don't know exactly how this works, but when we were talking about angels, it seems like there was this period of time where angels ha- kind of had this ability to choose to rebel. And after that rebellion, now they're not, there's no indication from scripture anyways, that angels could still fall. That there's, cause there's like the elect angels that first Timothy five mentions, but yeah, you got a point. They're not born into sin. So then this, like, the born into sin answers some of our question about evil, but doesn't answer, it, does, it doesn't back up far enough. So you, the free will ones, like the best one that's been mentioned so far to explain way, way back at the very, very beginning, why does evil even exist if God is all good, all powerful? Yeah, Mark. So what was Satan's original job? Was he to bring praises to the Lord? So we don't totally know. It says in the one passage he's a guardian cherub. So what he had to guard the Lord from or guard God from, I wouldn't exactly know, but all the angels in some sense, it seems from scripture, angels, one of the roles of angels is certainly worshiping the Lord. So um, it would make sense that that was at least part of his portfolio. I would imagine like, that's like the huge part, right? (laughs) There weren't at that point, the angels didn't have the responsibility to, well, I guess they, when humanity was created, they had the responsibility to minister to humanity. Um, but yeah, we don't exactly, from the scripture references we have, I don't think we could say definitively this is what his narrow role was. But, this is guessing, like, um, we're talking amongst ourselves, it's all this speculation, but if his job is to bring offerings of praise to God, hmm. then maybe in seeing all that going to God, it, it corrupted him. He wasn't able to handle it. Like, huh. God is able to handle it because he's God all-powerful, but he maybe couldn't handle that praise he was giving to God and was coveting it hmm. and fell into sin, desiring to be like God right? himself. Yeah, that's very well possible, right? Like, I think all of us could agree there's sometimes when we see, maybe we see somebody else getting what we feel that we would like, <laughs> right? And we, like, covet it, right? And that's... Pride, right? Temptation. Yep. We just wanted to build on that because I think what I keep thinking is, um, you know, none is holy. No, no one is holy except God. None, mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And yep. so, but, but then it kind of then leads to some speculation around, so any of God's creation could never match his holiness, mm-hmm. and therefore we're prone, not prone, but maybe... Uh, Perhaps capable capable of, of sin. And I, I don't believe God created evil, but he allowed it for his purpose. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, good. He allowed it for his purpose. Yeah. Well, I think, kind of like what Mark said, and what like you said, but I think that God is capable to, to be totally faithful to his perfect holiness. But is why is the reason to keep it perfect? Because who create evil? So I think when way, way back there is like, is God, is mm-hmm. the owner and creator of absolutely mm-hmm. the universe and everything. Mm-hmm. But he had like Lucifer as a, his general, is the general. And he probably told talk to him and show him and tell him about good and evil. Hmm. He talked to him good okay. and evil. But he disobeyed God. Okay, he, yeah. He disobeyed God. He mm-hmm. wanted to be... That is where sin starts. Mm-hmm. Because 
deceived yeah yeah so a question for that perspective is did god get caught off guard when sin entered the world not at all so it's not that by god god knows what to create everything doesn't mean that he is correct yes we everybody in this room would acknowledge and absolutely agree god is not the like it's not like god uh, tangibly, or how do you say this, is not the direct cause of evil. No. God sovereignly oversees evil happening, absolutely, like it happens within his sovereignty, but he is not, God is not evil. And we're going to point to scriptures that say that. So just before, okay, we're going we're gonna to get to some of this. In three minutes, we have a break. So before we have three, for the last three minutes, we're going to get to a little bit more of the theological reason like stuff behind this question is very very important but i want what i want you to all think about right now for a moment is just the idea of this problem is very important but i guess maybe just my pastoral sensitivity would say just be careful about how you talk about it and when you talk about it most of you already know this the answer to the problem of evil is different in the hospital room versus the classroom right so the answer to the problem of the evil, we can talk here, we can be very theological and, you know, oh, well, it's our sin and all this stuff, right? But if somebody asks you, what's the reason for all the evil? Usually, like some people will ask it because they're thinking theologically, like, how does this work? Does God exist? Can God be good? But a lot of people will ask that question on the day when they feel the evil of the world the most, right? And that is not the time to have the discussion like this. You all know that. I didn't always know that. So anyways, I just came for putting my foot in my mouth at the wrong time and thinking about like, well, in Bible school, they said the problem of evil is this, right? Or the, this is an answer, right? That just, just understand that it, it matters very much. At the same time, we don't give the hospital room answer to the classroom because otherwise people are like intellectually searching and you just give them the, you know, I, I, I grieve with you. I know it's hard. And you're like very empathetic and re- responding and hearing them out, but you're not actually giving them anything to think about and chew over, right? So we want to think about and chew over it a little bit. Okay, so we are going to get more. I have two minutes. I want to get some thoughts in your mind for the break. So potential answers, we've kind of done away with God's power can't be diminished, right? We're not saying God's not powerful enough to deal with evil. Some people would hold to that. They have more like a dualistic, right? It's like God, evil, they're opposite ends of the spectrum. It's kind of like a teeter-totter, right? Uh, They're equal in power, but God's kind of fighting evil and, you know, with our help or something. Well, totally, God is way more powerful and sovereign over evil. If you read the Bible, you're totally going to come to that conclusion, 
You can't avoid that conclusion. So God's power isn't the issue. God's goodness is not the issue. You can write down this verse, Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, speaks of God's perfection and the fact that he never sins. And also James 1.13, which tells us that God himself doesn't sin or cause, he doesn't, he isn't tempted in the sense of giving into temptation. Jesus was tempted, but never gave in, right? God is not tempted by sin in that way. And he tempts no one. God does not tempt people to sin. So that one is a keeper to think about. One way of dealing with this that we haven't brought up, but some have tried to bring up is redefining what evil is. So they say, well, it only appears evil, but really God's powerful, God's good. And the evil we see is actually good, but it's, we see it as evil or feel it as evil. Like maybe it's evil that's actually for the greater good. And that's, you know, that works out for everything. And there's a sense to which that's true. The problem is we, we cannot, there is absolutely evil in the world. And we cannot redefine that evil as good because then all of a sudden the good can be redefined as evil and we're just, it's like a words game, right? It's not actually fruitful. So some things to think about um, as you go into your break. Uh, I didn't actually give you a whole lot more to think about. I just told you what you not, should not think about. God's not, power isn't diminished, the goodness isn't diminished, and evil is a reality. So think about those things though uh, for the break and then we'll come back in 10 minutes and speak a little bit more about that. It's a very important thing. Some of you are answering the question and getting to the, you know, man sinned, man chose to sin and therefore there's sin, but God created the sphere in which man could sin. So how do we explain, like back up the cart one more, sin as an entity or whatever it is that defines sin exists and man could, could sin. So before man even could sin, before Lucifer or Satan or the, the, the devil could sin, was there sin? Was there the potential for sin? Just so think, think about that for the break for 10 minutes and then we'll discuss more. So, okay. Some of you have come up to me or said or talked and I've kind of heard, it's like, kind of like, well, we already know that the answer to this question is we don't know. Right. It's like, ah, come on. So I'm going to let you down and just say, there's not a nice, clean, tidy packaged answer that you're going to get at the end of this. Even, even some of the best answers, there's some holes we can poke in them. And so some of you might ask then, well, okay, if we can't arrive at, like, for centuries and centuries, theologians with way more knowledge than I have or any of you have, have been studying this and they haven't come up with an answer, then why should we bother, right? And the question is, well, God didn't create aspects of his character or aspects of creation that are beyond our knowledge so that we would just be like, oh, can't know it, great, let's move on, right? I think he did that to create a couple of things. One, when you don't know something, if you're like me, you want to know it. And so you start searching and you start digging and you start in context of relationship with God, you start to discover more of who he is. And we are going to discover certain truths that we have to hold on to very tightly. And studying this helps us to know those and not to get swept away into, I guess, well, I guess it's dualistic and God is not really powerful, right? We got to arrive at some of those conclusions. Those are really important. But then the other part is just the awe of God, right? When we study the triunity of God, you're like, 
I, I keep having discussions over and over and with people, and I'm like, I still don't, I can't explain it to you totally, right? I can explain what scripture says, and at the end of the day, that one's supposed to put us in awe of God. This one uh, is, is a difficult question, and it's a question we should ask, but we don't want to just get caught up in the weeds and say, well, let's, we can't know, so let's move on. I think it's designed to actually propel us to try and understand who God is better. So a couple of things that we can say, and a couple of, uh, because of some of the things you brought up, we'll make a couple of other comments. But first is this. Scripture is very, very clear that God sovereignly allows evil for reasons beyond our comprehension. So the, the story of Job and the story of Joseph are two that we'll look at in a, in a moment, or at least reference, but just get those in your head. Now, free will was brought up as a potential answer for why evil exists. And so uh, some would say they're, they're trying to wrestle with why is there the potential for evil? And they would say, well, you can't have the ability to choose without the ability to choose wrong, right? God could not give Adam and Eve free will unless he gave them the ability to choose evil, right? To choose to follow God or choose to disobey. And some would even go as far as to say that's intrinsically what it means to be human in one sense, is to have free will, the will to be able to choose. And obviously that would then correspond to the angelic realm, right? Where the, the angels have this ability to choose. It's a good idea. And some would even say, take it to say like, you know, how can there be love without knowledge of evil, right? There has to be like evil to be this idea of love. But with this idea of free will, first of all, are humans only humans if they have free will, if they have the ability to choose good and the ability to choose evil? If that's the case, my question to you would be, will we cease to be human when we are in eternity? Will we cease to be human? No, we will, we die right now. Our spirit goes to be with the Lord, but there is a resurrection, a physical bodily resurrection, right? Eden, what's the story? We got a glorified body, but are we going to glorified body that is non-human then? Because then we are basically what I'm saying, what I'm getting at is, are we not going to have any choices for the rest of eternity? Because that's what that position, if you go with free will, it has to be able this ability to choose good and evil. Then we know, we know for certain we will not sin in eternity. Mm-hmm. I think we, so then will we not? Anyways, yeah, go ahead. We become more and more like God. That's the goal. And in the end, in eternity, there's no weeping. There's no wailing. Everything is perfect. There's no mm-hmm. evil. evil yep, yeah, absolutely, yep. Yeah. Seem like, you know, we're just happy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. But what I'm saying is, I'm, I'm not saying there's going to be evil in eternity. Absolutely. Evil is done with, evil is dealt with. But will that mean that we in eternity become mindless robots? No. I don't believe that. So for free will to exist for, and we, we always want to be careful with the term free will because it doesn't show up in the Bible, right? We, we've heard that one from Pastor Aaron, right? So, yeah, I know it's, it drives you nuts, but then you're like, 
we don't have free will because we talk about being enslaved to the evil one. And then when we're redeemed by God, we're now no longer slaves of Satan. We're, we're actually slaves of righteousness, right? But then it doesn't apply for Adam and Eve who actually, if anybody can speak of having free will, it would be Adam and Eve who had this ability, like they, were, they had no sin nature that they were enslaved to in the, in the garden. And so if you want to ever speak about free will, you could speak about it in, in that context, maybe, but still within the sovereignty of God, because God knew what they were going to choose. God knew they were going to fall. God knew they were going to sin because he knew before the foundations of the earth that like he knew that Jesus was going to be crucified. Like this is not a surprise to God. So all I want to do is just challenge you to think free will or this idea of free will might not be the exhaustive answer to explaining the problem of evil. Jesus was truly human. We believe John 1:14. He was in the flesh. Could Jesus sin? No, clearly not. Unless you believe that he could sin, but just did not. He absolutely did not sin. Everybody agrees about that. But then there's these two views, the impeccability of Christ, meaning he could not sin, and the impeccability, meaning he could, but he never did. Well, it seems pretty clear that God, Jesus could, could not sin would be the best way to say it. So then Jesus himself being fully human and what it means to be human, does he have this idea of like free will? No, it, it seems like it's actually not necessary to hold that evil has to exist for there to be free will. It's a, it's a thought out there. That doesn't help us explain the presence of evil though. Yeah. He was not 50-50. He was 100%, 100%. I mean, the way that I hear pastor talking about 50-50, with this meaning, fully God and fully man. About that is the meaning of 50-50. No other way. Fully God. So 50-50 out of 50. Right. 100%. Yeah, 100-100. Yeah. So Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. Yes. Neither, neither was diminished. He, in one sense, Philippians 2, he, he gave up access or he gave up the use, I should say, of his like, deity, the full use of it. But it didn't give up the, the, the fact that he was God. He didn't like, I'm no longer God, I'm a man. But we just can't escape. He's 100% man. Now, Interestingly, when people talk about temptation, this is just kind of cool side note. They talk about temptation and the fact they're like, there's the verse, I think it's maybe in Hebrews talking about Jesus knows our temptations, right? He knows, he knows the full extent of, he knows the full extent of temptation so much so that none of you in this room can say, well, Jesus doesn't get it. He's never been tempted like me, right? And we say that, and, but then some people will be like, but he's never sinned. So has he really, really, really felt temptation like I've felt temptation? And the answer is yes. And it's such a cool way. I remember when somebody explained this to me, it was so cool because you actually don't feel the greatest weight of temptation until you actually resist it completely and never fall into it. Because every single person that falls into sin as a result of temptation, at some point it's like lifting a weight and then they collapse. 
Well, Jesus didn't ever collapse, collapse. So he totally felt the full weight and more than what we've felt in terms of temptation. He just did it perfectly, right? So just take that as a, uh, an interesting thought, but he's fully human, fully God. So that's why I think it's just, we need to be very careful before we point to free will as absolutely, oh, it's nice and tidy. It explains the problem of evil. So we know God sovereignly, like all I'm giving you is going to be these, these guideposts we can hang on to. This isn't really talking so much about demons, but it's important to the discussion that you can hold on to kind of like those dots and what's in between. We can't, we can't conclude extensively, but these will be helpful in our search, right? God does not cause evil directly, but brings about his will through secondary causes, right? And so, for example, Jesus' death on the cross. Who is responsible? We are. (laughs) But at the same time, God, Isaiah 53, it was pleased to crush him. So you read that and you're like, how in the world does that make sense? So God, it was in the divine will of God to have Jesus die on the cross. Yet it is not God's fault. It is humanity's fault. So God used secondary causes to bring about his sovereign will. If you're not comfortable with that, I'm sorry. But that that is what we have to wrestle with as scripture. God does cause Uh, does not cause evil directly, but brings about his will through these secondary causes. Not all that we think of as evil, this is another kind of post for you to think of, not all that we think of as evil is truly evil. Now, don't take that to the extent that we're saying evil doesn't exist, but let me just give you an example from life, right? So we could think of uh, my children, and they, dis, they disobey me, and I discipline them. My discipline to them, not understanding it, could seem evil, could seem totally not good or helpful. But in my lens, I see it and I say, I'm actually, it's, it's painful, it's hard, but pain doesn't equal evil, right? Just in the same way, you, you stick your hand by a fire and you, you, oh, you get burned, and is that evil that you got burned? Well, not really. It, it's not nice. It's painful. But that warns you of the greater evil of like sticking your old hand in the fire. So it's actually, in some sense, to call, to call that evil is maybe not helpful. So just think about the times the Lord disciplines his people. And we see the Lord disciplining his people often. And do we want to call that evil? Well, it's evil in the sense that, but their sin caused it, right? So it's, it's discipline though. So judgment of sin is not an evil thing. The sin is evil, but God's judgment of it is not. And so even though the judgment is harsh and severe, that in itself is a, a good and righteous thing. Lamentations, we just studied through Lamentations with our young adults group. Lamentations is not the favorite book of the Bible. Only like three verses of it are, right? His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. That's like what everybody quotes. But the rest of Lamentations is God disciplining his people for being absolutely heinous in their sin. It got so bad that the people of Israel were actually boiling their children in pots to eat them. That's how disgusting and depraved they got because of their sin. And God punishes them 
for their sin. And God's discipline, God's punishment, we don't want to think of that. God, God, when you see God acting in those ways, you don't want to think to yourself, God is evil. No, God is righteous and just to behave that way. Now, this is a final, another, uh, I guess, guidepost, especially as you're discussing the nature of evil with perhaps an unbeliever who's very much like, does God exist? There's evil. Just remind them and remind yourself, the person who bore the full brunt of the evil of this world is God himself in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came and died in our place, bearing the full weight of all the sin, like amazing truth that you just think about the, the brunt of evil that Jesus Christ himself dwell. And, and you won't find another faith where you can explain the problem of evil in such a comforting way. You can't explain away. You can't give a nice tidy package, but you can at least say, okay, we're struggling with it, but the God of the Christian faith has actually experienced it, has actually felt it. And so he knows what you're feeling uh, to an even greater degree. And then a couple of passages in the Bible that help us to understand evil. Joseph in Genesis 50 verse 20 gives us one way we can understand evil, not the only way, but basically saying the evil that happened to Joseph, God meant it for good, right? They meant it for evil and it was evil, but God sovereignly used that for good. If you, you can read the story of Joseph as a, an encouragement, if you're going through tough times, uh, that God might use this for good. Romans eight twenty eight, he does use it for the good of those who trust and believe in him. Job, though, the, the book of Job is where we go to for our understanding of the problem of evil. And what we find in the book of Job is not a nice, tidy package. We find out God is sovereign. Why are you asking the question? Job goes through this horrific loss, great evil at the hand of Satan. And the response he gets from God is not to say, well, I did it because of this this and this. God doesn't answer the question. God tells him, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who are you to ask me these questions in a sense? And Job says, like, I repent in ashes. I, I, I spoke too soon. I, I know that you are good and go on and on. So read through Job and you'll find we're asking the, prob- the question, what's the problem of evil? What's the problem of evil? And God's not answering that question. What he's giving us is, I'm sovereign. I'm in control. You weren't there at the beginning. You don't understand. And so we have to be content to some degree with recognizing Ecclesiastes 5 verse 2, God is in heaven. You are on earth. Let your words be few. In the sense of, let's not be too hasty to make too definitive of statements. We're going to search it out and study and try to understand it. But at the end of the day, we recognize God is sovereign. God is good. God is powerful. Yes, evil exists, but evil will not exist forever. It will exist forever in hell, but it will, it's, it's, it's got an expiry date for this world, for, this, um, for our lives, right? So just remembering that. So we didn't answer the question, but I think we've discovered some important truths along the way that uh, can help us understand. Back in the Garden of Eden, Somewhere in between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, Satan and his angels decided to rebel against God. Did God 
cause that directly? No. Did God tempt Satan? He doesn't tempt anyone. No. But he sovereignly allowed it and it's within his grasp. So, or within, uh, it's within his will. We got we to gotta understand that. So demons, these fallen angels, we're going to talk now a little bit more about them and some terminology. We're not going to get through all of this. There's a lot, uh, but some, ter- some terminology with angels. And again, you guys can ask questions later uh, after, the, after this or uh, save them for the Q&A as well. But some terminology. So demon as a word, the word demon only shows up in the Old Testament twice, where it's actually the root Hebrew word is like going back to demon. When you go to the New Testament, it shows up more. But in the Old Testament, demon shows up just twice. And so this has led some to think that demons, demonic activity wasn't really a big thing in the Old Testament. When Jesus is on the scene, all of a sudden, boom, there's demons and he's casting out demons that somehow demonic activity increased. Probably not a good way to think because when you equate demons with the word false gods and start to understand that the false gods they were worshiping were actually demonic, then all of a sudden, all these other religions around Israel are worshiping these false gods, these Baals, these Ashtoreths, these kind of things. And those are evidence of demonic activity. And so we just don't want to um, think that they're not present. But we're going to go to those two Old Testament passages. There's one other test, Old Testament passage that mentions demon, but it's actually the word goat. And it's in the context of the passage, it's referring to this worship, this goat worship. It's in, I'll give it to you for you to look up Leviticus 17 verse 7. We're not going to look at it, but Leviticus 17 verse 7, it uses the word demon. That's not the original Hebrew, but in the context, it's referring to this kind of like goat worship stuff that they worship these goats. And it's because the Egyptian religions surrounding Israel at that time did that. These really disgusting goat female things. That, anyways, you can read up a little bit about it if you like, but the, just know it's not actually the word demon there. So we're not going to go there. But Deuteronomy 32 verse 17, we will go to, where it talks about, uh, this is one of the places where demons are mentioned in the, the Old Testament. So the context is it's the song of Moses, which happens at the end of Moses' life. He's singing this song that the people of Israel are to remember. And it basically recounts, uh, it recounts God's faithfulness and the, and the people's unfaithfulness and the rejection of God. And this is one of the uh, parts of the passage where it's obviously talking about um, the people of Israel and the things they've done. So it says, verse 16, they stirred him, God, to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. So things had gotten so bad that the people of Israel actually started to worship new gods in the sense of like their, their forefathers, their ancestors got caught up in Baal worship or, or false god worship. But these Israelites are actually worshiping yet more gods that it was just so awful. Now, when you look at that, you might say, well, they weren't actually gods because it says they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, right? Well, certainly they're not gods. Like they're not God. There is one God. 
Um, some might make the argument that there's other spiritual beings that might be referred to as gods, but not actually like God. I don't really buy that line of arguing. But in this sense, it's saying there's demons that were no gods to gods they had never known. But if you go down a few verses to verse 21, it says, they have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Nation. So the parallel idea there, no people, no God, it's not that they're not real. Those, certainly it was a real nation that he made them jealous with. It was certainly a real spiritual being that they made God jealous with. And the real spiritual being, that whole idea of no God is they're not like God. They're not superior. The no people is they're not like the people of Israel. They're not anything substantial or significant. So anyways, evidence in the Old Testament that demons, uh, demons were present. We also learn that they can, are capable of being worshipped because the people started to worship these demons, right? And so clearly not a good thing. Um, not something that we should be, certainly not something we should be doing. Psalm 106 is also a passage that speaks of this in the Old Testament. Psalm 106 verse 37. This psalm is like Deuteronomy 32, recounting God's faithfulness, saying praise God, and then says as well to, uh, it just recounts the, the story of Israel mostly their lows, right? But it recounts the stories of Israel. And at this point, at verse, uh, Psalm 130, sorry, Psalm 106, verse 37, it says this, they served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. And so again, an example of the demons paralleled with this idea of idols. If you think back into the, Old Testament, it's not hard to find spots where the word idol is brought up. And so anytime you see the word idol brought up, there's the potential that there's a demonic reality to that. Now, I could like pick any piece of object around here, this remote, and start bowing down into it and worshiping this remote. That'd be like absolutely foolish. Is there a demonic element to that? Well, perhaps. I don't know that there's one demon. Satan's quite content if you're worshiping anything other than God. I, I don't know if I would say that that's, is that demonic? Probably in some sense, but the word idol, basically when you're looking in the Old Testament, just to flag your mind so that you think demonic activity, this is what's going on. If you see the word idol, it's probably referring to some kind of demonic activity, right? You think of Solomon who married all these women and what was his downfall? It was like his, his wife's idols, right? Or you think of uh, Daniel and his buddies in uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel not bowing down uh, to the, the idol, right? The, the thing that's been set up. Would it be such a big deal if it wasn't actually an idol? If there wasn't actually demonic activity? Well, it would be if you're actually truly worshiping, but we don't even want to give a hint of that. And so we wouldn't bow down, even if we think it's as ah, fake. I'm not bowing down to worship anything, right? I'm not bowing down and faking it for everybody else, even though I'm like, well, this isn't real. I'm not I'm just not doing that, right? Because of the idea of this demonic activity. So demonic activity is active in the Old Testament 
Think about the word idols when it shows up. Think about the word demons when it shows up. What we learn from this passage, though, is, again, demonic worship is a reality of the, the, uh, the Old Testament that people of Israel slipped into. But also, it's totally destructive. Just look at that. Like, when we read verse 37, I don't know if we really grasp how evil and heinous that is, but they sacrifice their sons and daughters to demons. Is that not like sick and twisted? I don't know how old these children would be, but to think of the thought that the demon, like that somehow Satan in his deception has deceived these people to think like, I'm, I'm sure they must be passionate people who think this is doing something that this is like, what would drive a parent to actually sacrifice their son or daughter? That's wicked. That is so heinous. And so just as you think about demonic activity, this is not like a, uh, who cares, not a big deal, not something. Like, this is evil. Before I became a parent, I could read that and be like, oh, that's like really, uh, you have to be really strange. But as a parent now, I read that and I think that is absolutely crazy. Absolutely crazy. So demons bring destruction. Just as a point of application though, as we think about this, they sacrifice their sons and their daughters to demons. I want to challenge you to think about our modern day context. I I know when I read this, I'm like, yeah, but that's like then. And this is not like this kind of thing does not happen. Right. And yeah, exactly, exactly where I'm going. Abortion is child sacrifice cloaked in 21st century garb, right? It is, it is, because you think about it and you're thinking, yeah, it's, it's easier for people because they don't maybe see their child in the same way, but it's absolutely the same type of thing. It's the uh, same type of eagle, same type of evil, right? Child sacrifice, where they're actually sacrificing their daughters. Now, it's probably not to demons, I'm guessing at abortion clinics, it's not like there's this, hey, you're worshiping a demon, right? And that's the subtleties of how the devil works, right? So if you think about what idol is being worshipped at the time of abortion, it's probably, in some cases, a very humanistic idol, right? It's like our own convenience, our own image, our own, like, you know, I can't have this pregnancy. I wasn't supposed to have this pregnancy, right? Or whatever case it might be. It's pressure from other people, whoever, who knows what it might be. And we're not being insensitive to it, insensitive to the fact that there are perhaps those of you even in this room have, who have had an abortion and realized afterwards what a heinous evil it was. But we don't want to just paint it all like, oh, it's not so bad. No, it's actually an absolute evil. Now God brings forgiveness, which is awesome. He gave forgiveness to his his people, he was patient with his people. So just be reminded of that. But I don't want you to think, hey, demonic activity in the Old Testament did really messed up stuff and demonic activity doesn't do that anymore today. It's totally not the case. Demonic activity is totally at work, I believe, in and through uh, just the, the massive number of abortions that are happening. And so just think about how true that is and how real it is. So demons is a word that shows up in scripture. And obviously that's pretty easy to think demons. That's one term. Again, we won't get through all these, but we're going to talk about the Satan, the accuser. Now, this is one 
that shows up a lot. As I've already mentioned, Satan, well, actually, we'll go to a scripture passage so that you see it from scripture. But Jesus actually identifies Satan with Beelzebul, prince of demons. And where we're going to see that is in Matthew 12, verses 24 and 27. So anytime you see Satan, you see the Satan, the devil, the accuser, we're going to talk, there's a lot of terms that refer specifically to this demon um, and the fact that we could know he's a demon. But anytime you see them, we can kind of learn and glean, okay, this is, this is what maybe demons are capable of. These are some of the, the things that we could learn about de- demons from it. So Jesus identifies him with uh, Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that's twenty verse 24. So the Pharisees actually accuse Jesus first and say, it's only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that by, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. This is verse 24, then 25. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out state, Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Then in the second line, next line, he refers in the same way. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So he's essentially saying, it doesn't make logical sense that I would be casting out demons by the power of a demon, even though potentially that could be possible. There's in Matthew 7, people that come before Jesus and they say, but Lord, Lord, didn't we do miracles and cast out demons in your name? And he says, go away from me. I never knew you. So that passage there tips us off. Okay, maybe, maybe Satan could actually empower somebody to cast out a demon, but it would not result in them being free. It would actually result in them being the whole idea of like one demon leaves, the clean seven more come kind of like it results in greater enslavement would be how we'd understand that. But it doesn't make sense that Satan would cast out Satan and there'd be freedom on the other end for the people. And so Jesus uses this. But what we want to point out is just this idea. Beelzebul, the prince of demons, seems to be equated with Satan, the Satan, accuser. Um, And so how do we know Satan is a demon? Well, this is probably our best... uh, one of the best ones to like kind of point to the connection between Satan and the demonic or as a demon. So also if you go to Luke 10 verse 17 to 20, it speaks about casting out demons. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said then, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, etc. But basically the part we want to take from there is the demons are subject to us and equating that with Satan. Satan, the demons. The, Satan's downfall is equated with demons being subjected uh, to these people. So the connection between them is important. Demons are oppressed. Demons oppress rather those uh, and they're described as under the power of the devil. So demons in Acts 10, verse 38, you can write that down. I don't know if we'll go there. Acts 10, verse 38, and Luke 13, 16. Luke 
13, 16 equates demon oppression or what would appear to be demon oppression with those under the power of the devil. So this is, again, just trying to show that Satan is, in fact, a demon. Verse 16, and ought not, this is Luke 13, 16, and ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And so Satan clearly is attributed as the person that had bound this, this lady for 18 years, and it, it talks about in the same way it talks about demonic oppression uh, in the New Testament. And so that kind of is one of the verses we'd go to to say, Satan, demon, kind of same thing. Now, it appears from that other, uh, the other passage, and especially Revelation 12, that it would appear that Satan is somehow like comparable to Michael in the sense that he's like some kind of leader of the angel, evil angels, right? But either way, he's an evil fallen demon. So his names, there are probably 12, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 13, I think I have here that are different names or descriptions of the Satan, the accuser. And they are the devil. You can look that one up in Luke 4, verses 3. He's called the tempter in Matthew 4, verses 3. And we'll go there for a moment. Matthew 4, verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. This is where Jesus had just come back from the wilderness and Satan is the Satan, the tempter is doing what he does best. He's tempting. He's trying to deceive. He's even trying to deceive God himself, Jesus, uh, trying to destroy what Jesus set out to do because Jesus had a purpose in coming and Satan would love for Jesus' purposes to be thwarted, right? And so he, he seeks to tempt. But this is an ex just an idea, again, you see the word, the tempter. We understand that, and we see the, um, the devil, right? The tempter, the devil, kind of these different words describing him. And that helps us clue us in to how he works. Interesting from this passage is the tempter, uh, not this one. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, the next one, right? So the way Satan tempts, and I know you've probably heard sermons on this before, it's interesting that Satan will twist scripture to tempt you, right? So he speaks, Jesus answers him with this man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus answered with scripture properly applied. Then the devil took him to the holy city and uh, set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, Satan quoting scripture he will command his angels concerning you and on their heel hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So I'm trying to remember if those are two separate passages. If they are, Satan's like double quoting, double quoting scripture. But either way, he's quoting scripture to Jesus, tips us off just because somebody or some demonic power can quote scripture does not mean that that scripture is rightly applied because Jesus says to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Rightly applying scripture. That scripture is not meant to say, hey, go up to the top of the temple and walk out because he's going to take care of you, right? But clues us into how demonic activity functions. It's not all blatant lies and deception 
sometimes it's truth twisted, misapplied, right? And so we need to be super careful of that uh, as a result. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 5 also speaks about Satan as a, uh, a tempter. Paul talking, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So the temptation is not only, Jesus was not the only one tempted by uh, the devil, the Satan. He's actually at work in other ways. He's called Beelzebul. We already looked at that passage in Matthew 12. He's called the enemy for, for obvious terms in Matthew 13 verses 19, uh, sorry, 13 verses 39. The enemy, sorry, you had a question? I, had, I just missed what you said. What was this, the last oh, Beelzebul? No, the next one. Uh, the enemy? Matthew. Yep. So he's called the enemy here in Matthew 13, 39. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. You can read through that one to talk about the uh, the, the parable that Jesus is telling there, but the enemy, right? He's describing the enemy, explaining he's the devil. He's obviously our enemy. He's not on our side at all. He's the evil one, Matthew 13, 19. So this one also interesting. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, this is a, the parable of the seeds, better said the parable of the soils, right? The seeds are all the same. The soils are different. But anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart, and this is what was sown along the path. And so it's, it's ex Jesus explaining the parable and actually saying that this one, because the soil was not ready to receive the word, was not ready to receive the seed, it was on this path, this like harder soil, the devil actually snatched the word away. Which, I don't know, if we, like, again, parables are meant to tell, like, to, to make one point, how, how much we should take, read into this. But at least it makes the thought of, you know, we talk often about sowing the seed into people's lives, speaking the truth, right, sharing the gospel, and we think, well, we've planted a seed. Well, we haven't actually planted a seed if the soil, if the soil is hard, right? We scatter our seeds, and we're not in control of the soil we scatter them on. But I guess it's just kind of reminds me to think we don't just scatter the seed once and think we're done, right? Because if they're actually not ready to receive it, that seed doesn't necessarily just stay there. It's not like Satan's okay with, oh yeah, that the God's word is just going to stay and they're going to remember every illustration and how you shared it. So I think this, if you want to make a point of application and maybe not too strongly, but I think the rest of scripture would agree is we don't just share the gospel once and then think our job is done, Right? If the soil is not ready to receive it, we keep sharing. We keep, spare, we, keep, we keep sharing the word. And at the time when the soil is ready to receive it, the soil is going to receive it. And so we want to be faithful in that way, uh, sharing. But just recognizing that, that when somebody's not ready, Satan is at work trying to uh, steal away the word so that people don't hear it. And so he is the evil one, Matthew 13 there, verse 19. He is Belial. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 15, kind of a, an interesting name. It also shows up in some, I think, some, like, scripture outside of, or not scripture, shouldn't call it scripture, some old documents outside scripture near the same time. 
Um, let's Second Corinthians six fifteen. What accord has Christ with Belial? And Belial, if you just hovered over, it'll tell you what it is. It's supposed to. Yeah, I thought I was going to be all be able to show you just how that works. Belial. Worthlessness. This is kind of the dictionary, right? It's a name of the devil. The Antichrist too is given that name. It says here in. I'm not sure which passage that is, but anyways, Belial is one of the names given. So look out for that one as you're reading. Uh, and I'll try to do better research as to what that actually one means. He's the adversary. This certainly goes in line with what we were just talking about. Peter. 5 verse 8, 1 Peter 5 verse 8, a warning to Christians to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. If you, Satan's out to get you. He's your adversary. He's the devil. He's prowling around like a roaring, roaring lion. Like a roaring lion, he's not actually a roaring lion walking around seeking somehow someone to devour. So just be watchful. We're, we're actually commanded to be watchful and especially of the demonic realm, just realizing that this is, this is an actual present evil and we can resist them being firm in our faith. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week as we talk about how we're supposed to uh, engage with the demonic. But adversary, he's the deceiver. Revelations 12, verse 9. So here he's actually also called the great dragon, that ancient serpent. This kind of clues us into this is speaking about Genesis 3 in mind, calling Genesis 3 to mind, right? That ancient sermon who is called the devil, the Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Like you got all the names right here, right? He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. This is that passage I was mentioning you you talking about things yet future uh, that you can you can read about as you read Revelation. And Pastor Aaron also did a, a series in 242 Church on Revelation that's available on our website, so you can listen through there. Uh, see, so he's called the Deceiver, the Great Dragon, and Ancient Serpent we've got in there. He's also called the Father of Lies, John 8, verse 44. We've already been here. But Jesus, again, speaking... He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. <laughs> I just, as I look at that, I'm like, man, that takes guts to say. <laughs> like, you are of your father, the devil. Can you imagine that? Like, being there, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So he's the father of lies. If you want to know where lies come from, from Satan. When your children lie, don't tell them that they're father. You're, you're of your father, the devil. <laughs> but in a sense, in a sense, it's true, right? Especially if they're, if they're not saved children. <laughs> but uh, use that one with caution. <laughs> I didn't just tell you to go home and say that, right? Jesus is obviously speaking to people that knew, uh, knew better. And so, father of lies, right? That is Satan. 
He's lying. I don't know if you've ever been, I hope you've never been lied to in a real big way, but I know all of us have been lied to. And there's something just so disturbing about lies because as soon as somebody lies to you, I can remember in a counseling situation, probably, I think it was maybe last year, like somebody actually like lied to me, like directly to my face. I asked the question and they lied back and I actually knew the truth before I asked the question, and so their lie was like very obviously a lie. But even as I said it, I thought, if I didn't know they were lying right now, I'd be so convinced. I'd be so convinced. When you've discovered somebody's lied to you, all of a sudden, everything you know just becomes up for grabs. Because you think, especially if it's somebody close to you, they've lied. Now, what if they're lying to me? What if they're lying to me? And and you go through your head, right? When that trust has been broken. So just think about how destructive lying is. And it's obvious that it comes from Satan. But it just, I guess it it clues you into, as we're thinking about the demonic realm, they're, they're professional liars. They're professional liars. They're good at lying and deceiving, which is why we need to arm ourselves with God's word and be thoughtful and careful and be on, on our guard because they're good at it. And so we just need to be very, very thoughtful. You would never trust the devil. <laughs> Certainly you'd never trust the devil because you can't trust him because you don't know what he says is true, right? Um, it's kind of like the, uh, when we were doing that uh, passage in Titus two weeks ago with Pastor Aaron. It's so funny. I think it's in scripture, it says it's a true statement, but it says Cretans are always liars. And we know this because a Cretan told us, right? It's like, <laughs> but... A Cretan told you that, anyways, <laughs> they're all liars. How's that work, right? But it says it's a true statement. But the whole idea of if there's lies or deception, we don't know what's going on. That is totally characteristic of Satan. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he's a, li- a liar and the father of lies. And so that marks demons, right? They're of, they're of their father. Um, they're following Satan. They're, they're full of lies and deception. He's a murderer. We saw in John 8, verse 44, he would have nothing... He, he hates your guts as a Christian, would have, he would be very, very glad if you would just end it, if you would be done with, if he could murder you, take you out, if he could cease to have you worship God, if he could extinguish your life. He's a murderer, he hates your guts. Just remember that. Uh, it's, it's part of his evil character. And he's also a sinner, <laughs> pretty obvious. First John 3 verse 8 speaks about uh, him being a sinner. It's also important, though, because it tells us that whoever makes a practice of sinning, meaning their life is marked by sin, habitual sin, unrepentant sin, not less sin as they become more like Christ, but marked by sin. Whenever, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So he's been sinning from the beginning. That's important for us to just realize that if somebody is actually sinning, they're unrepentant about their sin, there's no conviction, no nothing, they are of the devil. They are, they are sinning, they're part and parcel. They're like Jesus said, you know, you're, you're your sons of the devil, right? Um, it's very, very serious. So we learn about Satan in a couple of other books. Uh, we've talked about them already, but Job is like the oldest book of the Bible. Uh, we believe it's probably, probably potentially written 
before Moses actually penned Genesis, even though Genesis comes before Job in the story. Um, but Job, one of the oldest books of the Bible where Satan is mentioned, right, uh, in coming, the accuser coming before God and, and trying to take out Job. We see from that, we'll get into this a little bit next week because we're almost out of time, but he has limited control. Just so you know, he's limited in control. He's not free reigning to do whatever he wants. There's boundaries. A uh, couple other terms and then we'll end it. So false gods is also a term that shows up, uh, up lots. Idols, right? Um, evil spirits will show up. We'll probably touch on some of those next week. But at any rate, you get the idea. Demonic activity is real. Demonic activity shows up. And it is absolutely evil. And we're going to look into that a little bit more next week. We'll talk about the limitations they have. And then more importantly, talk about what our response is supposed to be. Because this is where it gets a little crazy, right? People go to crazy extremes. (laughs) And we don't want to be people that go crazy beyond scripture. But we also don't want to be people that are like ignorant and like, well, it's not really real. And then we're totally duped by the demonic realm, right? And uh, led astray or off into um, the godless myths or like Galatians says, like an angel telling us another gospel and we go with it because we're just like so naive, right? So we want to be sensitive to those things. Anyways, that's where we'll end it tonight. So we'll pick up next week doing some terms, talking about limitations, talking a little bit more about those things and then uh, application. Before you go, I'm going to pray for you because I think it's really important that we do that. And uh, then we'll head out. Father, we are so comforted by the fact that you are good. You are powerful. You are all-knowing. We know there's evil in our world. We know that the demonic realm is real. But as your children, we know that we have protection. We know that we're not left uh, just vulnerable. At the same time, Lord, you've given us protection, faith in your word. You guard us through our faith and we pray that we would not uh, neglect that. We would not not neglect the armor of God that you've given us to protect ourselves. And so while we know you're, you're sovereignly protecting us, there's also an element where you've given us responsibility. And so this week, Lord, I pray for each one here, myself included, that we would take up the armor of God and that we would be aware of what's going on, that we'd be discerning, uh, as to its origin and that we would be battling it the way you've called us to battle it. And so we just pray that that would be the case this week. And we pray that we would be effective uh, sharers of your good news as well. Help us to continue sowing the seeds over and over again, uh, being faithful with your word as you give us opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.